study in the Islam religion, and the reason for studying it is because of uh, one of the things, what's going on in the world today, the number of Muslims there are, and the fact that, uh, that most Christians have very little knowledge or understanding of the of Muslim religion, and yet I would guess that there's nobody in the world that's being in, any more influential on the world for good, bad, or in between than the, the Muslim people right now. What I'm going to do in the uh, study tonight is read some excerpts from this book here. It's called Islam Revealed, and it's a Christian Arab's a study of Islam. The, the man here is an Arab, uh, converted to Christianity, raised in that part of the world, and this is his research work. And so far as any notes are concerned or anything, you can if you want to, but you don't have to because uh, I'm going to do two things. One thing, the book is excellent. I hope that some of you that are interested might make a decision to get the book and mark it. But the quotes that I give you, I'm looking at just the high points all the way through here. I'll try to run those, uh, copy them, and run it off so everybody will have a copy of at least the high points on the subject itself. Now, first, before looking at this and the Islam religion, I'd like to note just a few things about uh, our belief uh, in the Bible, Old and New Testament, as inspired of God and what, what should be the case. And that is that, one, all through the Bible, Old and New Testament... Nobody is ever asked to believe anything without proof, okay? There's not a single solitary time uh, that anybody is ever asked to believe anything without evidence. Remember, even when Moses went to Pharaoh, uh, his first question was, well, how is uh, Pharaoh going to believe that I come from God? And remember, the signs that were used there were designed to make a believer out of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people and also the, the Israelite people at that time. And then when the Jews throughout their history, uh, they were told by, Mo by Moses that there would be all kinds of people that would claim to be prophets of God. And Moses anticipated their problem in recognizing. And so he said, if a person speaks and, and what he says doesn't follow, uh, then that ought to let you know that he spoke it presumptuously. It's not from God, that anything that is from God would obviously be true and it would always come to pass. And that's Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22. They were also told, once the law was given to them uh, and confirmed, that uh, one mark of the prophet would be that everything he said would be in harmony with that law that was given. And this will become important in the study of Islam because Islam claims to believe uh, much of the very same law. But they were told that, that everything had to be in harmony with that law, Deuteronomy 13 and verses 1 through 5, among other passages. All right, another thing, it was the teaching of the Bible, Old and New Testament, that, uh, that what the law itself, not only was it right, but you were made an image of God and you would find inner identification with it with your own conscience. So much so that the very laws given would be the type of thing that you would inwardly identify with. It would be the type of thing that you through your own conscience would have already come to that conclusion. And that's in Romans 2 and 14 through 16. Now this is important too when you look at the Old and New Testament that there is that statement and assumption that that law being true, you being made in the image of God, the law works, that it would find harmony with you inwardly and through your own conscience. Uh, for example, in Deuteronomy 4, 
in verses 5 through 8, the Jews were taught that if they practiced that law, that they would be a light to the other nations. Uh, and they would look in, at, at the Jews and that law and say that what nation is there that has a law like this or a God like the Israelites had. Uh, later on, Jesus uh, made the statement to his followers that they would be a light in the world, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and that people would glorify God because of their good works. Well, obviously, in order for people who have not read the Bible or who did not know the God of Israel or who did not yet know Jesus, to look at the uh, actions of these people and to listen to what they say and to and to to pronounce it right and agree with it, that in, there is the assumption that those people are made in the image of God and that there was inner identification with this material. In other words, the Bible, number one, never asked you to believe anything without evidence. Evidence of revelation was of a miraculous nature. There was the miracles that confirmed the messages. Uh, there were the prophecies uh, about events that, that always came to be exactly that way. There was also that law that found inner identification with your own conscience. And this is true all the way through in the, in the revelation of God. And, and all through the Old Testament, there were always a multitude of people claiming uh, to be prophets of God. One of the best examples is in the day of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, when there were more claiming to be prophets that were not, then there were true prophets of God. Uh, and always, uh, it, it's made clear that because of your conscience, because of your knowledge of that law that works, because of the evidences, uh, that you had the ability to discern what a true prophet was. When Jesus sent the apostles out in the New Testament, first of all, Jesus didn't expect anybody to believe in him without evidence. And even made statements like, if you don't believe in me, believe because of the miracles. They testify of me. John 10, 37 through 38. When he, he also predicted his death. He predicted his resurrection. He predicted the judgment on Jerusalem and the temple and their destruction. Uh, all of which came about and would be verified with historical evidence. When he sent the apostles out, he didn't send them out just with a message. He sent them out with the evidences uh, behind the message itself. And the reason for the miraculous uh, was always just simply to prove that the message was from God as it, as it went out. Another thing to note when it comes to the miracles of the Bible, uh, the miracles of the Bible were always out in the open. Uh, they were always for the purpose of producing faith. It, it did not demand faith to experience the miracle. It was there for the uh, production of faith. Also, the miracle was always something that was an obvious circumventing of the laws of nature. It was always instantaneous. Uh, as you read through the Gospels uh, and a miracle takes place, you always are told immediately such and such happened. In other words, that it was something that was very obvious and therefore a sign or a wonder to the people. You and I were not there. We did not see those miracles. But there are certain things that we do see in the effects of those miracles and the way they're presented. We noted, first of all, that the plurality of testimonies that we have about Jesus and the Acts of the New Testament all concur and are harmonious with one with the other. We know also that the uh, places where the apostles went, that they converted people by the thousands, and this is without conquering them or threatening them or scaring them, uh, but simply by power of persuasion that they converted people. In other words, the, the question becomes, 
how do we explain Paul going into a city like Corinth and establishing the Christian church and converting so many people where they changed of their own free will, nothing was forced on them, and life actually became harder for them by way of persecution and acceptance among the majority as a result of, of Christianity. How do we explain that kind of phenomenon separate apart from very persuasive and strong evidence? And then when we look at uh, the Jews by the thousands who embraced Jesus as the Messiah by virtue of having the resurrection proven to them, again, we have to deal with the fact that for these Jews who found in Jesus at first somebody who was not their idea of the Messiah and who came to set up a spiritual kingdom that was quite different from the physical one they looked forward to, there had to be something extremely powerful in the way of evidence to cause them to embrace Christianity, reject all the ideas that they had been taught of a Messiah and a kingdom through their childhood, and totally and 100% embrace Christianity. Uh, what was it that caused these Jews to embrace the Gentiles as an equal? Uh, the fact that they did uh, lets us know that there had to be some very strong and persuasive evidence. Okay, now... We could go on and, of course, study, as we have been in the past, all kinds of things in the way of evidences that cause us to believe the Bible is inspired by God. But our point in this, we're going to study Islam. Our point is to establish the fact that whether it was the Jews or the Christians, nobody ever believed without evidence. And the God of the Jewish prophets and the Christian apostles never expected anybody to believe without evidence. Not only were they not expected to believe without evidence, but always there was this underlying assumption that this law that was given was so right that there would be inner identification with the consciences of the individuals, uh, that they would be able to look at the world that they lived in and see that it would be a lot better place for individuals, communities, and nations if people actually pursued this law. And it would be that awareness that would cause them to repent. In other words, they wouldn't repent out of fear. Uh, they would repent because, hey, I can see this is right and that's wrong, and therefore I'll change my mind and embrace this. That's the kind of repentance that we see uh, in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Now, let's take a look at Islam. And I'm, I'm for, the first quote here is on page 21. Again, the, the book I'm using here is Islam Revealed. I've got several other books. This is the best. Uh, so far as being up to date of the ones that I have access to. First thing uh, concerning the number, about one out of every five people on the face of the earth, or 20%, is a Muslim. Okay, that's a tremendous percent. One out of every five, or about 20% of the population, uh, is a Muslim. Okay, this would be short of Christianity, which would claim over a third well over a third of those of the population of the world would make the claim to be Christian. But suffice it to say, the Muslim is second to Christianity in number, and they are the fastest growing religion in the world. Okay, so just by sheer number, they demand uh, attention. Okay, now, the book of the Muslims is the Koran. Uh, the Koran is held in greatest esteem. It's reverend by them. In fact, they don't even touch it without first being washed or purified. And so the Koran is, is their absolute, totally holy book. A person able to memorize and repeat the whole Koran by heart is called a Hafiz, H-A-F-I-Z. 
And by the way, in the, in the study of the core, and this was interesting to me, their number one thing among the common people and the vast majority of Muslims is not to study the Koran in the way that, that we study the Bible. Like, we'll take something back to its historical setting and we'll look at the meaning of the words and we'll consider the, the idioms and all of that and the culture and then we try to really get into the meaning and, and what applied directly to them and what applies to us today. The, the number one thing in the study of the Koran is, is memorization. Uh, in other words, more important than any other thing is just sheer memorization of the Koran itself. And the top more, uh, Muslim scholars, many of them, can fully and totally quote uh, the Koran from memory. Uh, next to the Koran in Islamic life is tradition. Okay? Uh, the Koran is regarded as supreme. Uh, okay? But then right after that, you have tradition. The belief of Muslims is that their prophet, in all that he said and did, was guided by God. Okay? So you have, on the one hand, this revelation given to Muhammad and written down. But then on the other hand, since he was a prophet of God, everything that he said or did or anything was important to them. And so the traditions about uh, Muhammad and the various things that he said and did separate apart from what's written in the Koran uh, is the next important thing to them uh, uh, behind the Koran. Now, when it comes to uh, some materials that you and I accept as Christian, they will put that on a par with tradition, but not on a par with the Koran. Okay, the Koran is supreme up at the top, and then they have their tradition, and they will put some of the materials that we hold concurrent with them, uh, they'll put on a level with, uh, with tradition, but it has to be in the Koran uh, for it to be the really supreme, meaningful thing to them. Okay, now, uh, let's see. This is page 23 here, another statement on the Koran. The Koran is considered so sacred that only the companions of the prophet who were in constant communication with him are deemed worthy of explaining it. The work of learned divines since then has been to memorize the Koran by heart and to master the traditions, along with the writings of the earliest commentators. So, whereas you and I today in our study of the Bible have no more respect for a commentator in the second century uh, than we would have for one today. In other words, we would read him and evaluate his comments, and then we would uh, accept the fact that all through the centuries, more and more facts are gathered that allow scholars to go back and re-examine and, and look at materials. All right, with the Koran, they considered that only those very close associates with Muhammad could actually interpret and explain the Koran. Okay? So, since the days of Muhammad, the job of the, the Muslim scholars is simply to memorize. And it would be considered disrespectful and irreverent for some scholar today to go back and to challenge the interpretation of one of these very top people with Muhammad, the people that were there with him and heard him talk and experienced that time. It would be irreverent. Well, you can see from this very start that uh, you're going to have a hard time improving on your ideas of any part of this faith. If the best you can do is just simply go back and memorize the comments that were made made in the past on the Koran. Okay. Well, how close is it to the Bible? I mean, does he, is there some copying like with a lot of the other uh, things? Like? Not, not necessarily copying. We'll get to that later on, on, on that, on the closeness on it. But it, uh, there are some things. In fact, uh, we can say this right now. 
the thinking of Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad, by the way, was born in 570. Okay, uh, the thinking of Muhammad was definitely shaped by the influence of Jews and the uh, Jewish and Christian religion. There's no question his his concept of the one one God as opposed to the idols, uh, his thinking of different things in worship and all, there's no question that it, it came from the Old Testament scriptures and then some of it also from the New, and that that definitely influenced his thinking. So is he the one that put this corn together? He wrote it. He right. wrote the corn. Right. Muhammad. Muhammad is the, uh, he's the, he would be the one, uh, and by the way, that's another feature of the corn as opposed to the Bible where you have a plurality, uh, probably at least 40, maybe more. Uh, people that were involved in the writing of the Bible uh, over about 2,000 years in, in three different languages. With the Koran, you've got one person writing it during a very short period of time. One, one person, the author of it. I saw this lady on, uh, I think it was Oprah Winfrey, it was one of the talk shows. She was from Iran, and she had married this doctor that was a Muslim. And she went back to Iran. He made her believe that she was just going back for a vacation. And did you see that? They made a movie out of it. Yes, they made a movie yeah. out of it. And she went back, and he just completely changed personalities and was mean to her and told her that she couldn't, yeah. she was his property, and he took the kid yeah. and wouldn't let her leave and all this stuff. Yeah. And, but, you know, if they believe, you know, and she well, said, yeah, they quoted, the, they were very religious and quoted the Koran and, and read it all the time. So I thought that was... Well, we'll get, when we get there, we'll... We'll, not tonight, but we'll get to the section of what they think about women and why, you know, that they actually think on it. But they do. They're, uh, I don't think he changed. I think he just uh, came out with what he actually believed all the time, you know, anyway, when he, when he got over there. He just couldn't do it here. Uh, the delivery and the writings of the Koran extended over 23-year 23 23 period. Passages were taken down from Muhammad's lips from time to time by some writers, or they were first committed to memory and then recorded later on. But all of it come from Muhammad. It's given over a period of 23 years. Uh, some of it he writes directly. Some of the passages, the people that heard him uh, later on uh, put it down. It's written in the Aramic language. And the, let's see, the corn is regarded as holy. Let's see, the, uh, containing 6,200 verses or 80,000 words. 330,000 letters. All right, later on we'll get a comparison with, uh, with the Bible. We have something smaller than the New Testament here, but about 80,000 words are 6,200 verses. It was first printed in, the, in Aramaic at Rome in 1530, uh, the French translation in 1647, and then after that, uh, translated in, into the English language. Okay, now, let's see. This is the, within the Koran itself, this is the creed of Islam. Alright, these five points here. Number one, belief in Allah as the one true God. And by the way, Allah uh, is Jehovah, or the God of the Old and New Testament. <coughs> Number two, belief in angels as instruments in God's will. Well, you can see right there that uh, you've got two things in common with a Muslim. Uh, you believe in the one true God. Uh, both Christians and Jews believe in angels as the instruments of God's will. Okay, and by the way, both of this, uh, you can see, come from the Bible. Belief in the four inspired books, the Torah, Zabur, Angel, and the Koran. And the Koran is the final and most complete. Now, although the Torah 
you think of it in terms of the, the first five books written by Moses, it's really not that same. They call it the Torah, uh, which is the law, but it's not the five books that we know. Okay, And the same with what they call the Psalms. It won't be exactly the Psalms that, that we know. What are those again? Could you spell them? All right, the Torah, that's the law, T-O-R-A-H, Zabar, Z-A-B-U-R, Zabur. These are their four inspired books. The Injil, I-N-J-I-L, and the Koran, Q-U-R-A-N. And sometimes you'll, now that's the way it's spelled. Sometimes you'll see it written K-O-R-A-N, spelled the way it sounds. And of course, the Koran is the final and most complete. Okay, now so... The first three tenets in their creed, belief in Allah as the one true God, we have that in common. Belief in angels as instruments of God's will, we've got that in common. Okay, then the belief in their four books. All right, now, number four, belief in the 28 prophets of Allah, of whom Muhammad is the last. We're going to see we've got a lot in common there. And then belief in a final day of judgment. And so anybody that believes those five things can be Muhammad. And the thing that they repeat over and over is, you know, concerning this Allah being the one true God and Muhammad being his prophet. You must profess that publicly to become a Muslim. Okay, um, all right, now concerning the prophets, Islam claims to be open to revelation from Allah whenever and wherever it occurs. Okay, now here are the 28 prophets. And here again we see where we've got something in common with the Muslims. One, Adam... Two, Noah. Three, Abraham. Moses. Isaac. Jacob. And notice this now. Jacob, Ishmael. Mm -hmm. Joseph. David. Solomon. Elijah. Elisha. Jonah. And then from the New Testament, Zechariah. John the Baptist. And Jesus. The five prophetic predecessors to Muhammad, specially mentioned, are Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. The Quran affirms the virgin birth of Jesus, but not his eternal pre-existence. Okay, it affirms his virgin birth, but not his eternal pre-existence. Teaches that the crucifixion and resurrection did not happen as the Bible says. The Quran includes some of the miracles and moral teachings of Jesus. Uh, the Muslim believed that Jesus was crucified, and that his spirit went into paradise or heaven, but that there was no bodily resurrection. Now, there is a group of Muslims that came later on, and we'll get to them later later on, probably not tonight, but they believe in the, the what we call the swoon theory, that Jesus did not die on the cross, but he only swooned, and that he was not completely dead, and then he did. Uh, you know, appear to his apostles and all. But they, that's a new group among the Muslims. Uh, most of them just accept the fact that he died, but his, he, his, he literally didn't die in any full sense, that his spirit went directly into paradise. And they would accept his virgin birth, but not his, his pre-existence. Uh, when we, uh, as Christians, believe in the deity of Jesus and think of him as equal with God, this is blasphemous uh, to the Muslim. And by the way, this is, although we've got all these things that we can agree with them on, we can see that this is a big difference here. In fact, uh, the whole idea of a three persons as one God uh, is absurd uh, to the Muslim. And they've got some very strong statements on that when you talk about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and then God. 
And to them, anything other than the one true God would be blasphemous. So that on the one hand, there's some things about Jesus they accept, but they believe that Christians have a complete misunderstanding concerning uh, uh, his deity or his being equal with God. All right, Muhammad is considered the last and the greatest of the prophets. And he's the seal of the prophets after whom no more will come. So they're not looking for any more prophets after Muhammad. Um, they believe that uh, from the statement in John and, of course, the other Gospels, but remember where Jesus prophesied that the uh, Holy Spirit would come. They apply that to Muhammad, and they say that Jesus was talking about Muhammad to come. And so all the passages where Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit to come, uh, they believe that Christians have a misunderstanding of that, and they apply that directly to Muhammad. And so you can see what they're doing in the way of even evidence here. Uh, whatever evidence stands behind Jesus uh, now stands behind Muhammad because uh, Jesus, by, by their interpretation, spoke of him. Okay, now, uh, readers of the Koran uh, will find, and by the way, I hope that before the study's over that we have a Koran and can uh, notice some things in there. Readers of the Koran find that Allah is portrayed as stern and harsh rather than compassionate. Uh, judgment Day will be preceded by signs announced by a trumpet blast the dead will arise bodily from their graves and join the living. All will be examined one by one and assigned to paradise or hell. Well, you can see there, uh, and this is interesting to me, their idea of a judgment day uh, comes from the, the New Testament. And the particular verse, that uh, passage, is in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. And so the interesting thing to me is that a, a passage of Scripture that in context applied to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the, and the downfall of the Jewish nation, but that Christians, through misinterpretation, have applied to uh, uh, the judgment on this world and, 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 and everybody rising in a bodily way and, the, and things of that nature, uh, they have actually taken that and built on it. They've got a very harsh, stern God, and then they have a literal bodily resurrection and they have the various other things that are figurative in nature there in a, in a literal way in the judgment. Huh, no. I missed that. Why would you say that? How does Jesus supposedly uh, speak of Muhammad, did you say? How in I... speaking of the Holy Spirit to come, that was Muhammad. Oh, okay. So they use him to speak of Muhammad. But the, the, the word itself is, is not Holy Spirit to them. It's Muhammad. Hmm. The word itself? No, no. The, the, word, the word that you translate Holy Spirit... They apply that strictly to Muhammad. That's, uh, in other words, there is no Holy Spirit that Jesus is speaking of to guide the apostles into truth. Jesus there is speaking of Muhammad. But well, wonder what the literal word means, Holy Spirit, I guess. No, it means the proselyte, means the, the comforter or the counselor. Okay. It doesn't. It Did doesn't. Muhammad teach that himself? They apply it, they apply it to him on okay. that. Uh, in fact, some, some of the things about Muhammad become actually a little hard to ascertain. First of all, the only information we have about Muhammad is uh, from the Muslims. I see that uh, the, the first biography on Muhammad wasn't done until several hundreds of years after his death. And so that there's actually contradictions concerning uh, things about Muhammad. There's a lot of uh, so-called sayings of Muhammad that all Muslims don't accept. There are certain things that he supposedly did that some Muslims will accept and others do not accept. But there's a lot of, uh, lot of uh, uncertainties 
uh, concerning him because, I mean, after all, this happens among an illiterate people uh, in a desert situation, and the first biography is several hundred years later. And so, you know, some of it, it's hard to determine, you know, just exactly what Muhammad... And then Muhammad, uh, his own development is a gradual type thing, you know, so far as his beginning to think of himself as a prophet of God. Now, all of that was a gradual type occurrence. He, he himself did think of himself as a prophet. Oh, yeah. He did. He definitely... He was the one that started there. He definitely thought of himself as a prophet of God. Uh, based on... They didn't have, sorry. Are you saying they didn't have... Uh, the, the Muslims don't have didn't record things going back to the time of him. You said they were illiterate mostly. Uh, yeah, there's uh, things, but it's not like uh, the records we have. There's there's no documents that were immediately received by that generation and passed and that you can historically examine them. There's just bits and pieces that come on down through the years are added to and supplemented, and it's, it's hard to determine what was embellishment and what actually happened you know, on some of the, on the things concerning him. But you, you don't have a biography that is written at the time that those people are alive uh, that were involved with him and then published and, and therefore the scrutiny of all the people so they can say this happened or, or this didn't happen. We've got to go several hundred years down before we get a, a biography of him. So that fails to ask the test of history then since nobody was around well, to check it out. Well, from our standpoint... From our standpoint, later on we'll go back and look at the Koran. Part of the study will be to look at the Koran and compare that document, you know, as to as to with the other and all like that. But uh, from our standpoint, yes, you know, it it, it would. Um, let's see. Uh, notice their idea of judgment. No one can escape the judgment. Okay. Vivid pictures are given of the balance scales, which will be used to weigh the good and evil deeds of each soul even to the weight of a mustard seed. Pious believers in Allah can expect abundant... Notice now, here's what you're going for in heaven. Pious believers in Allah can expect abundant sensual pleasures in paradise. There will be perpetual luxury, physical comfort, food, clear water, mansions, servants, lovely maidens, virgins, the wicked will suffer and swelter in the hot blast, foul smoke, and molten metal of hell. Well, heaven sounds like something that a very materialistic, worldly individual would conjure up, and hell sounds like something you'd conjure up for your enemies. So that's, and that's exactly what we've got. It, uh, and by the way, as we get through here, I think one of the things, uh, one of the things it did for me in studying uh, Mohammed and the Islam religion and the various facts concerning the Koranah is help me to appreciate the Bible, uh, the New and Old, Old Testament, that there is just spiritual information there that man wouldn't come up with. Uh, we don't really have any descriptions of heaven of, uh, that are sensual and things like this, that everything they're looking forward to is something that would be appealing to, to fleshly individuals. And by the way... Uh, there's no explanation there. It's like no, nobody's thinking on this. Uh, you're wondering in a heavenly spiritual realm in paradise, how do you have all these things? Clear water, mansions, servants, and lovely maidens, and all I catch, you know. Before they believed in the bodily resurrection. But then the judgment, and then you go to paradise or hell. And see, they, they have a physical concept of that too. If they believe that some physical is coming up out of the garden. But it's, uh, they still, they have, and just like now, when you die, you, when you die, but still, 
if you put it in its perspective, uh, a lot of sermons I've heard in the past from a Christian standpoint give a very physical conception of bodily oh, yeah. uh, resurrections, uh, literal streets of go, and uh, all kinds of physical things. Uh, you've got uh, uh, Christian groups today who are looking for a, a redoing of this earth, you know, and all the physical comforts and everything here, and then hell becomes a literal burning fire and all these various things. But anyway, it's something that... Uh, it definitely is is something that I can see originating in the in the mind of man. I can also see some misunderstandings of uh, Christianity and and the Bible from within their their belief. Um, Those five books, uh, Torah, you said is, is basically maybe a little different order of the law. What's the, the zipper or whatever? What's we'll get to that later. The the books because that the one that's important really is a Koran. The one that's important is a Koran on on that. And the just think of Torah as a word that means the law. You know, that's and that's and we're not talking about the first, you know, five books of Moses. Uh, the creed, uh, all right, and here are the duties are the pillar of Islam. Okay, they've got five specific duties known as the five pillars, and these are demanded of every Muslim. Okay. Uh, number one, the creed, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, is the bedrock belief of Muslims. One must declare this doctrine publicly to become a Muslim. It's repeated constantly by Muslim believers. When you see these people marching and hollering and carrying on and you wonder when they're going to run out of words, well, they may not be saying as much as, as you think they are. Uh, they're repeating that over and over and over. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, of Allah. Okay, next is prayer. First, the repeating of this creed is a duty that every Muslim must do. And keep in mind what we've already said about salvation Salvation has no concept of an atonement, okay? Salvation is a matter of judgment. And, and the good and the bad in your life is going to be weighed in scales, even right down to the last mustard seed. And the idea is for the good to outweigh the bad, as so far as the Muslim is concerned. But from within those scales, when we get our scales out, we've got a priority. And, and number one is that you have repeated publicly that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Okay, so you've got one feather in the cap if you've done that a number of times. Okay, next duty is the daily prayers. They pray five times a day. Okay, number one, they pray rising to get in the morning. Number two, at noon. Three, mid-afternoon. Four, after sunset. And then before retiring. So when they rise at noon, mid-afternoon, sunset, and before retiring. Okay, and they... And their prayer now is, is a duty. It's something that you cannot be uh, saved eternally if you don't pray those five specific times every day. So you've got to repeat the creed, and you've got to, say, you've got to go through those five prayers specifically. Um, some of this sounds a lot like the Pharisees, uh, you know, and their attitude of, of, of weighing in the scales and the good outweighing the bad. And uh, the Pharisees had certain specific times that they, they had to pray. Uh, the Muslims have a Friday uh, public service similar to the Christian Sunday. Now, here is something that if, if anybody knows on this or if you come in contact with it, I have not. Uh, to this point, I don't know why that Friday is their Sabbath. You know, We know why that uh, the seventh-day Sabbath uh, of, the, of the nation of Israel, we know why that uh, we uh, worship on Sunday in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, their Sabbath is on Friday. 
And I read so this. Start Thursday night and end Friday night? Or yes. Okay. I think it's Thursday night and ends Friday, Friday night. And uh, the uh, I've read another book here. I've read still another book. I've read an encyclopedia. And I've read several other little articles. And to this point, uh, you know, I just know they worship on Friday, but nobody has specifically given the reason. And so I really, I really don't know at that point. So if, you, if anybody knows, you can speak up. Or, and it's something I'm looking for, okay? And anybody I ask, uh, you know, hasn't, I haven't found the person yet that, that's been able to tell me. Would somebody like Lee, is he familiar with this religion? Would he know those kinds of things? I find out real fast. There's Muslims. Oh, you know who? Wasim, May. Well, yeah, well, there's another guy from Pakistan I met named Muhammad. And one of my teachers is Muhammad Al-Ashim. Okay, that would be good. He's been giving me a tough time. That would be good, Tim. Time. Why don't you do that for us? Ask him specifically the reason that they come up with Friday. There's a uh, professor in the basic engineering department, too, that's a Muslim. Huh. So, a lot of them, even just, in uh, this country yeah. anymore. I'm my, curious. My office mate was Muslim. He just recently left. Hmm. Keep in mind now, something we'll get to in here, that when we say Muslim... Uh, there are about 150 different sects among the Muslims, and they've got their groups who believe they are the one and true group and everybody else is, is lost. Um, Mohammed himself forecast that there would be seven, his group would divide up into 73 sects, but that only one would be the true sect that would go to heaven. Well, he missed it, you know, they've divided up into about 150. Okay, the Muslims have a Friday public service similar to the Christian Sunday worship service. However, Few women attend the services, much like in the Orthodox Jewish services. Men worship in the central hall, while women are either in the back of the hall or in a separate room. Men and women do not worship together. Furthermore, the ceremony wa ceremonial washings of feet and hands and face prior to prayer finds its origin in Exodus, the 30th chapter, 18 through 21, where God instructed the Jewish priests uh, to do that 2,000 years before Muhammad. Okay, now... Another part, so we've got the saying of the creed and prayers, and now another part of their duty is almsgiving. All Muslims are now required to give one-fortieth of their income for the destitute. Now, I'm sure their contribution total would be more than that, but one-fortieth of their income for the destitute. Uh, by the way, one of the reasons from, uh, that's come out, I think, in this war we're having, that the Kuwaitis... Uh, were so despised among a lot of the other Muslims is that they were very rich and apparently gave very little to the poor Muslims. And so there's, uh, uh, we look, at, we, we went into this thing thinking that, hey, we're, you know, that they are <coughs> some feeling for us helping them out. But the Kuwaitis were rather hated over there because of the fact that they were rich and they were not very compassionate toward their poor brethren. Every next duty... Every Muslim is expected to make a pilgrimage at least once in his lifetime to Mecca, okay? That's the birthplace of Muhammad. So everybody makes a pilgrimage once in his lifetime to Mecca. Where it's an that? essential part in gaining salvation, Saudi Arabia. It's in Saudi Arabia? Mm -hmm. That's the, Saudi Arabia would be the real holy part of uh, the Muslim religion. See, the, the, uh, that's why that... Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein has made such a big thing about the, the American forces now right over there. See, that's where a number of their holy sites are, right over in that area. Uh, the Saudis, from what I gather, are among the strictest, you know, of all the Muslims and their attitude towards the women and things like that. It, it seemed to me, and even looking at the, the films on the Egyptians and everything, that 
that uh, the Saudi Arabians seem to be extremely strict on all that thing. Why but anyway, you have to do this. You don't go to heaven if you don't do this. Would the journey apply to the women too? It says every Muslim, is even making, in this once country, in his lifetime, must make a. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> it's an essential part in gaining salvation. See, that's what they're concerned with him now. That uh, uh, when they all make their trip and all there, you know, that even was going to affect the timing of the war and everything. But it's an essential part of their salvation. It just says a pilgrimage at least once once in your lifetime. Why why do the Arabs why do the people like in Saudi Arabia dress in this garb, but then the people in Iran? Well, people in Saudi Arabia live in a hot desert. Yeah, yeah I know. That's just their... Well, that's probably a good part of the reason why they yeah. wear those clothes. It has nothing to do with religion. Well, I don't even mind. It, it does somewhat now, Barb, but that would go back in the custom, just like when you read, in, even in 1 Corinthians, uh, the women were wearing a veil there, and, mm -hmm. and it was wrong for them to go uncovered. Right, I just wondered why. Maybe they do in Iran, but I hadn't noticed The women did wear a veil. Yeah, Iran. the devout Muslims uh, do. But see, you keep in mind among the Muslims, you've got, uh, just like among Christians and Jews, you've got uh, more conservative and traditional and, and more liberal, you know, that in there. But no, they would all have that feeling uh, toward, towards the woman. I mean, any devout Muslim would. Okay, the uh, jihad. You've heard about something about a holy jihad and the jihad. war. Yeah, J-I-H-A-D. Jihad, I think. Jihad. Yeah, a lot of jihad that's okay, now it says uh, this again is part of their pillars. When the situation warrants, men are required to go to war in order to spread Islam or defend it against infidels. One who dies in a jihad is guaranteed eternal life in paradise. Okay, so, so notice again. The definition of jihad is what? Uh, when a situation warrants, men are required to go to war in order to spread Islam or to defend it against infidels. Well, see, this is what uh, Salaam's calling for, a holy jihad. And he's saying the situation warrants that they need to defend themselves against infidels, and that's what he's trying to start all the time over there. All right, and then from the, the common person, one who dies in a jihad is guaranteed eternal life in paradise. All right, and it says the severest atrocities in contemporary Lebanon, the largest number of bombings, the most frequent kidnappings are perpetuated by al-Jihad groups. This is a, a Muslim group. In Iran, they call themselves al, I'll, I'll spell it, M-U-J-A-H-I-D-E-E-N. Mujahideen. Mujahideen. M-U-J-A-H-I-D-E-E-N. And this is... They provide the largest number of fanatic terrorist fighters as well as soldiers. So you can see why they, they, we call them terrorists. But again, by their religion, it's a sure ticket to paradise. And what we call terrorism is them fighting infidels and spreading the, the Islam religion. How do you spell the jihad or whatever? Jihad is J-I-H-A-D. Okay, now... Now, um, when they are doing these terrorist acts, do they say they're doing it to spread the Muslim religion, or do they say... Yeah, that's their... In other words, they believe, just like this statement here, it says, uh, are they doing to it struggle in the path of Allah with the pen, the speech, and the sword is jihad. In other words, 
anything you do to promote the Islam religion, and this includes the pen, it includes speaking, and it includes a sword. And so we would say that we do anything by way of the pen and speaking to promote Christianity, uh, they add the sword to it. And so they, that's why that you and I find a problem with people praying to God and, and claiming to be religious and holy and yet so quick to take a life. But keep in mind, they have been taught this from youth. You know, and then that is that is the and it's a sure ticket to heaven to die in that way. All right, the news media has lately announced that a new group called HIZB, HIZB, Allah, the Party of God, has claimed responsibility for the bombings and kidnappings in Lebanon. Khomeini, the current ruler, current ruler of Iran. That's when this book is written has even preached that the purest joy, now listen to what Kohomini, you know how, how uh, dominant he was. This was his preaching. The purest joy in Islam is to kill and be killed for Allah.